The year, 1592. The place, Japan. An egotistical dictator has unified Japan and sets his sights on world conquest. His first target, Korea. Toyotomi Hideyoshi is about to launch the Samurai Blitzkrieg and begin the Imjin War. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and I am kicking off my second series today. This is episode 20, The Imjin War Part 1, Samurai Blitzkrieg. You guys, this is going to be awesome, because we're going places and meeting people that were completely missing from your high school history class. We are going to begin a longer story today by meeting a Japanese warlord named Toyotomi Hideyoshi and seeing how he sent his samurai army on a massive invasion of Korea, kicking off East Asia's greatest gunpowder conflict and the largest war of the 16th century, the Imjin War. And I am super psyched to tell you guys all about it. If you want a longer introduction to this story, If you need more context, you don't know your Koreas from your Chinas and your Mings from your Mongols, I have released a short introduction, Introduction to the Imjin War, on my feed. You don't have to listen to that, but if you want a little more basic background on this time period, the countries involved, and my overriding focus in this series, that's where you can find it. There are also maps on my website and social media for you to follow along, links in the description. So I encourage you to take a gander. Did you listen? Awesome. Hope that helped. And if you didn't, that's cool too. On with the show. As always, this is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on, especially today. The podcast is PG-13, language is clean, content is not, not, not clean. The Imjin War was a brutal conflict, and there are content warnings today, heck for this whole series, for sexual assault and unusually gruesome violence even for this podcast. Next, all my sources and some especially hand-drawn maps, as I do for all my series, will be posted on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. So if you want it, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, mistakes are all me. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So let's get the Imjin War started. History does not repeat itself. But sometimes it rhymes, it echoes. There are common human experiences, situations and emotions and scenes that seem to be timeless. I'm going to give you a scene, a scene that has played out many times over all over the world in many different conflicts and in many different cultures. And I want you to see if any of this sounds familiar. The warlord paced back and forth, the center of attention as his generals looked on. He made angry, violent gestures as he spoke, describing the might of his nation and the strength of its army. His generals had heard this before. For years they'd heard him say that he was a man of destiny, chosen by fate to dominate the world. But there was something about this man, something that compelled people to follow him. He was egotistical, stubborn, a little bit crazy, maybe a lot crazy. But he had done amazing things, he had made his country into a military superpower, and his soldiers followed him because they wanted to. 
His generals were honed by years of successful campaigns. They were among the best in the world. But even they were stunned by what their leader proposed. Only a madman would try it. The invasion of a powerful country, huge, seemingly impossible to defeat. But he'd done the impossible before, and he believed that he could do it again. After all, the last few decades have been full of impossible events. The dictator pointed to the map that lay before them, the invasion routes marked by flags and arrows. His country would set out on its greatest war yet, the war that can make him the most powerful man in the world. Failure was unimaginable. Destiny was on his side. Now this might seem familiar, right? This could be Alexander the Great about to invade the Persian Empire, or Hannibal marching into Italy to fight Rome. Genghis Khan on his conquests, the conquistadors in Mexico or Peru. Could be Napoleon or Hitler about to invade Russia. I think the Hitler comparison will probably be the one that y'all are most, you know, that's one, that's the one y'all think about. But none of those are who I had in mind. Because the man I just described was the great Japanese warlord, Toyotomi Hideyoshi. The vast empire he intended to invade was China, and only the peaceful kingdom of Korea would stand in his way. This was the invasion that would launch the Imjin War and begin the story in this series. Hideyoshi has most often been compared with Napoleon. Some historians call him the Japanese Napoleon. But Hideyoshi was not the same as any of these men. Not Napoleon, not Alexander, not Hitler. But there is kind of a resemblance. There is kind of a parallel. This is what I mean when I say that history echoes that there are common human experiences. Despite the unfamiliar names, unfamiliar places, events, and words, and stories, the same basic humanity is always at work. These are human stories, like I keep saying. Real stories with real people. But Toyotomi Hideyoshi, the great Japanese warlord, was only one of the two men whose character and decisions would make the Imjin War what it really was. The other man was Yi Sun Shin, one of history's most brilliant admirals and one of Korea's greatest national heroes. We will meet both men today, both Hideyoshi and Yi Sun Shin. And even though the millions of people who fought in, suffered, and experienced the Imjin War are all important, and we absolutely will witness the common experience, I'm going to focus on these two characters throughout the series. Hideyoshi, the megalomaniac who wanted to rule the world, and Yi Sun Shin, the man who, more than anyone else, would stop him. Today, we will begin the story of the Imjin War. We're going to explore three major Asian countries on the eve of conflict, China, Japan, and Korea. We're going to witness a samurai blitzkrieg that seems unstoppable, but then we will see how someone stopped it. And I'll tell you why it matters at the end of our story. Today is part one, and at the end of part four, I will tie it all together. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because this is an epic story, there will be breaks. These are your chance to pause, load the dishwasher, cook some pizza rolls, do the thing you need to do. So tighten your demon-faced helmet and sharpen your katana, because we're going on campaign. Where are we going, you ask? Well, there were three countries that took part in the Imjin War, and we need to get them all situated. 
We will start with the country and the man that would provoke the greatest conflict of the 16th century. We need to start with Japan and Toyotomi Hideyoshi. Japan was in chaos for centuries, long after the Mongol invasions. The military dictators known as the shoguns had ruled in the name of the emperor. Japanese government and society had been centered and centralized in the capital at Kyoto. But in the 1460s, central authority disintegrated, and the result was civil war. Japan fragmented into dozens of territorial units run by warlords, figures known as daimyo, who fought each other for supremacy. So the daimyo are the warlords controlling all these little bitty states all over Japan, and they're always fighting each other all the time. This is the period of Japanese history called the Sengoku Jidai, the Age of Warring States, or just the Age of War. So when people talk about the good old days, right, they mean, huh, not this. For those keeping score at home, this occurs about 200 years after the Mongol invasions of Japan, and the Age of War begins before Columbus discovers America, and continues during the early discovery and exploration of America. So guys, this right here, this is the era people think of when they think of medieval Japan. This is the age of ninjas, geishas, samurai with katanas in big insectoid-looking armor, leading thousands of troops into battle. The Sengoku Jedi was an age of constant warfare, a kill-or-be-killed thunderdome, where fortunes could turn in an instant, last week's underdog could become today's top dog, and even a random foot soldier could if he was lucky and smart enough, become a warlord. The Sengoku Jidai is one of the most dramatic periods in Japanese and world history, and guys, I wish I had more time to talk about it. The characters, the campaigns, the betrayals, the dramas of the Sengoku Jidai are worthy of their own series. Maybe someday, if this podcast runs long enough. But eventually, like in a sports bracket, some of the daimyos started to move towards the championship. This was violent, ruthless natural selection, where the winners got stronger and the losers ended up committing suicide by seppuku as their castles burned down around them. Eventually, someone was gonna end up on top, and just by process of elimination, it would be the most dangerous, ambitious, ruthless warlord of them all. Now, in 1543, in the middle of the Age of War, a couple of weird-looking dudes arrived on the small Japanese island of Tanegashima. They said they were from some crazy place called Portugal or somewhere, and they had some really neat toys. Something they called an arquebus, or a matchlock musket. Now, the Japanese were familiar with gunpowder. They'd seen cannons and grenades and even low-tech small arms before, but the arquebus was like several notches in development above any of these. The Japanese just got a massive boost in their gunpowder technology at the drop of a hat. Soon, any daimyo who could was manufacturing and using thousands of muskets, which were often called tanegashimas, after their place of origin. Japan had entered the gunpowder age. And now, some of the samurai were like, ugh, those, are, those aren't honorable weapons. But anyone who figured out how to use the new weapons had a massive advantage over those who didn't. Some people complained about the new weapons. They weren't fair, weren't worthy of a samurai. But those guys usually ended up at the bottom of the food chain, conquered by other daimyo who did use the guns. 
Natural selection via gunpowder. Because a bunch of samurai warlords, a bunch of daimyo got a hold of these things like, wow, these are awesome. We can kill them a lot faster this way. The most prominent of these guys, one of the greatest military leaders in Japanese history, was Oda Nobunaga. In two decades of warfare, Oda Nobunaga seized control of central Japan. In 1573, he overthrew the shogun, and in 1575, he won a battle at Nagashino, when his musket-armed infantry, positioned behind wicker barricades, slaughtered the powerful cavalry of the Takeda clan, changing the face of Japanese warfare forever. Oda Nobunaga was infamous for his brilliance and his cruelty. He massacred thousands of people by sacking Buddhist temples that he was opposed to. But Nobunaga would not reunite Japan. He was just too cruel, too unbalanced. He didn't have a stable enough personality to get to the top of the food chain. It took a man of ambition and vision, a man of skill and subtlety, a man who rose from nothing and wanted everything. This was the least likely of all the daimyo, the most remarkable man in Japanese history, the man who would launch the Imjin War, Toyotomi Hideyoshi. Toyotomi Hideyoshi rose from obscurity, from a peasant family in the Japanese backcountry. No noble lineage, no great name, just, just a kid from the, from the farm. He grew up in the age of war, and like so many other young men of his day, he drifted around as a mercenary, eventually winding up in the service of Oda Nobunaga. Nobunaga recognized talent when he saw it, and Hideyoshi became Nobunaga's most trusted subordinate. He started out carrying Nobunaga's sandals, but he kept them under his coat and kept them very warm. And Nobunaga noticed this and appreciated this, like, I like your spunk, kid. I'm going to promote you. Hideyoshi eventually rose from private, from carrying sandals, to general, based on sheer competence alone. But no one who looked at Toyotomi Hideyoshi would peg him as a great conqueror. Like, seriously, this dude? He was short, hairy, scrawny, looked kind of like ape-like, almost like a monkey. Nobunaga himself described his own top general as a monkey or a bald rat. Even his own propaganda later in life didn't try to portray him as attractive. I guess that was just too much of a stretch. But underestimating this odd little man would be your last mistake. Hideyoshi was brilliant, ruthless, incredibly dangerous. He had dreams of conquest and the ambition and competence to bring them about. He had come from nothing, and he wanted everything. Hideyoshi's moment came in 1582 when his boss, Oda Nobunaga, was assassinated. Within 13 days, Hideyoshi destroyed his boss's assassin in battle and took over his domain. He defeated all his other rivals in a series of rapid, brilliant campaigns. Then he spent the next eight years conquering the rest of Japan. By the final campaign, the Siege of Odawara in 1590, his armies were nearly 250,000 strong. What's important, too, is that Hideyoshi used the carrot and the stick. He used diplomacy and force in combination to turn many of his enemies into allies. One of these enemies turned allies was a na man named Tokugawa Ieyasu. Tokugawa had been another of Nobunaga's top generals, one of Hideyoshi's former colleagues, and he challenged Hideyoshi's claim to be top dog of Japan. They fought each other to a standstill in several battles, but Tokugawa eventually saw the writing on the wall and decided to submit. Tokugawa was still the second most powerful man in Japan, but even he bent the knee to Toyotomi Hideyoshi. 
By 1590, it was over. The Sengoku Jedi, the Age of War, was at an end. Hideyoshi, the son of a peasant, had reunified Japan in less than a decade. All the great daimyo bowed to him and acknowledged him as the head honcho. Japan did have an emperor throughout this entire period, technically, but the emperor had about as much real power as a high school class president. Everyone knew who was actually in charge. Hideyoshi didn't have the title of emperor, but he was the man running everything. Now, but Hideyoshi was not from a noble family. He couldn't take the title of shogun. That was a stretch too far. It would strain his legitimacy. There hadn't been a shogun since 1573. Hideyoshi did take the title of chief imperial advisor or kampaku, but most of his subordinates referred to him as the taiko, which means something like the great lord or supreme commander. This word taiko is the origin of the modern word tycoon. So let's just call Hideyoshi the tycoon, the dictator, the warlord of Japan. Now, Hideyoshi was more than just a war leader. When he was in power, he reorganized Japan's administration, conducted land surveys, and set all these policies up to return Japan to a normal status. Hideyoshi's diplomatic skills and flexible goal-oriented approach restored peace and government and law and order to Japan. But absolute power brought Hideyoshi's weird personality into focus. He was like, I see him as like a combination of Kanye West and Joseph Stalin. Like, I want you to imagine an analogy. Say that all 50 states in the United States broke up into their own separate countries and fought each other for dominance next week. And some kid from, I don't know, some farm kid from North Dakota takes over everything eventually. He wins. He wins and reunifies all 50 states. Would this guy be a normal person, a balanced personality? Probably not. Like anyone who goes from the bottom to the top, Hideyoshi had certain ideas about power, wealth, and authority. He did his best to forget where he came from. He downplayed his humble origins, insisting that he was descended from ancient clans, but no one really believed this, even if they played along. His new palaces and his castles were gaudy and gilded, compared to the usually conservative and restrained Japanese style, a poor kid's idea of a rich man's house. He embraced Japanese high society and court culture, especially the elaborate tea ceremony, Ringa poetry, and no theater. He liked to have plays written about his great military conquests and then play himself in them. And like any good dictator, he forced his entire court to sit and watch him relive his victories. Hideyoshi's character was complex and unusual, brilliant but crude. He was capable of great mercy and tender love for his family. He was always writing letters to his wife, making sure that his elderly mother was well taken care of. For instance, one letter he wrote in 1589 said that, If mother is kept in a small place, she may begin to feel depressed, and so please take care of her for the time being. But if she is kept in a large place and there are drafts, she will catch a chill in such surroundings, and so you must not do that. On the other hand, Hideyoshi was capable of astonishing cruelty. He had adopted his nephew, Hidetsugu, as his surrogate son and heir. But when Hideyoshi had a son of his own in 1595, he decided he didn't need his nephew anymore. Hideyoshi's samurai surrounded his nephew's house, forced him to commit seppuku, then dragged his nephew's family back to Kyoto. On his orders, 34 screaming women and children were beheaded one by one and buried in a pit marked tomb of the traitors. So yeah, 
Japan's new tycoon was not a stable personality, not one bit. Hideyoshi's ambitious, unstable personality was the ultimate cause of the Imjin War. Because he could not be satisfied with just Japan. He had risen from peasant nobody to kingpin of a country. And this fed a dangerous delusion that he could do anything, maybe even rule the world. He had come from nothing and he wanted everything. He saw no limits to what he and the combined armies of Japan's warlords could do. Hideyoshi looked west to his next target, China. In the 1500s, Ming China was the world's largest, strongest country. In contrast to Japan in the middle of its buku age of war, China was a centralized, highly organized empire with an educated bureaucracy and a large standing army. Its territory was huge, its economy was dominant, and it was the cultural epicenter of East Asia. China is the world's oldest and most consistent superpower. Multiple dynasties had ruled China since ancient times, but the Ming Dynasty had brought the Middle Kingdom to a new apex of wealth and power. Its founder was the Emperor Hongwu. He had been one of the leaders of a rebellion that had finally driven the Mongols out of China in 1368. So the Mongols are gone. They're back in Mongolia. China is independent again. Then he had defeated the rebellion's other leaders to come out on top. He kind of sounds more than a little bit like Hideyoshi's origin story, doesn't it? Hongwu's descendants, the emperors of the Ming dynasty, ruled from the forbidden palace in Beijing, the glorious capital of an empire that saw itself as the center of the world. China has always been the hegemon of East Asia. Even if its power has risen and fallen throughout the centuries, China is always a force to be reckoned with. Its sheer size and population make any other East Asian country seem downright puny. Its culture, literature, and philosophies have also had a dominant influence on the rest of Asia. At its height, the Ming Dynasty fielded a million soldiers in its armies and ran the largest fleet in the world. Most of Asian history has been dominated by what some historians call a Chinese world order or a Chinese hegemony. This was based on the idea of China as the central kingdom, the center of the world, ruled by an emperor who called himself the Son of Heaven. For the right to trade and have good relations with China, other countries like Burma, Thailand, Vietnam, or Korea would formally acknowledge the Chinese emperor as their overlord. They sent tribute, and in return, China sent back gifts and allowed these tributary countries, which is what they were called, tributaries, to trade in Chinese ports. China was also obligated to protect its tributaries if someone threatened them. The tributary system was not an alliance, not really. It was a loose connection between a big country and a little country that brought benefits to both. Almost symbiotic, or like a big brother-little brother relationship. Big bro was looking out for all his little bros. But Ming China wasn't doing too hot lately. See. Chinese empires have like a kind of life cycle, a rise and fall cycle, where after they've been around for a couple of centuries, the cracks start to show. Like an aging celebrity, they'll put on some makeup and do some plastic surgery to keep looking spiffy, but that doesn't change what's happening under the skin. Because by the 1590s, China's economy was stagnating. Corruption and neglect were becoming a major problem. The country had suffered recent famines and rebellions. The emperor almost never left the Forbidden Palace. He relied on his court officials, his eunuchs, and this meant lots of pointless and stupid court intrigue. In short, 
The Ming weren't as powerful as they wanted people to believe anymore, but they were still the big dog on the block. The current emperor, the Wanli Emperor, had done a lot to restore the activity and efficiency of the military. And if they wanted to protect their prestige, if they wanted to keep that uh, plastic surgery, all that makeup going, they had to protect their tributary nations. Big Bro had to look out for his little bros. And China's favorite little brother in the 1500s was Korea. Most of y'all have lived your entire lives with Korea divided into North and South Korea. But this division is new and unnatural, because for most of its history, Korea has been united. It was still a united kingdom when, in 1392, a general named Yi Song-ye overthrew the current regime, and he founded a new dynasty, the Choson Dynasty, taking the name Taizhou. Choson, as the new state was usually called, forged an alliance with the equally new Ming China, and the two countries had been close ever since. But after the founding of the Joseon dynasty, Korea had been calm, quiet, peaceful. Joseon can also mean land of the morning calm. And that's pretty much what Korea was, the land of the morning calm. Korea is about the size of Minnesota, a heavily forested mountainous peninsula that stretches off the Asian landmass pointing like a thumb at Japan. From the capital city of Seoul, the Joseon kings ruled a unified state that controlled pretty much the modern territory of both North and South Korea. But Korea was quiet, remote from any danger, had very little internal conflict. It really was the land of the morning calm, and that was largely because Big Bro was looking out. Korea and China traditionally had a tight relationship, and this was never tighter than during the Ming and Joseon dynasties. Even though Koreans were and are a distinct and separate people from China, Koreans are not like the Chinese. They saw China as the embodiment of civilization and culture. They tried to model their own country's institutions on China's. They studied Chinese history and literature, their government officials wore Chinese clothes, and they sought the approval of the Chinese court for most of their big moves. One Korean educational text said that, we made our customs like that of the flowery land, so that Chinese themselves praise us, saying Korea is little China. Seriously, like I said, a big brother, little brother kind of thing. Korea was the little bro that idolized big bro. This led Korea to adopt a political and spiritual philosophy for its government known as Neo-Confucianism. The works of the Chinese philosopher Kung Fu Si, or Confucius, had always been very influential in Chinese society. But a reinterpretation of Confucian principles had recently taken hold in Ming China, and Chosun Korea adopted Neo-Confucianism as basically their state religion slash philosophy. This ideology stressed the importance of family duty, loyalty, honesty, and the ability to gain knowledge of the world through education and learning. Neo-Confucianism was super into the idea that you could learn everything you needed to know about the world from a book. All sounds pretty cool, right? Well, mm, Neo-Confucianism tended to overvalue education rather than experience. A Neo-Confucian would put a philosophy professor in charge of re rewiring your house over an electrician because the philosophy professor's read more books and he knows more automatically, right? Probably not. It, but it could also be authoritarian, misogynistic, rigid, and narrow-minded. Neo-Confucianism had some 
upsides but some downsides. Any doctrine can be toxic if it's applied the wrong way by the wrong people. Neo-Confucianism was also extremely hostile to Korea's Buddhists, large Buddhist population, and the more powerful the Neo-Confucian elites became, the more the Buddhists were persecuted. This made the Joseon court, unfortunately for everyone in, in Korea, a two-party system. The court was divided into two factions, the Western faction and Eastern faction, who argued constantly over slightly different interpretations of the Confucian classics, throwing out of context quotes at each other like nerds at a sci-fi convention. Originally, these parties supported different claimants to the throne way back in the time, but by the 1590s, they just disagreed because they hated each other. Neither faction had any real political beliefs, but just automatically disagreed with what the other faction said. If the Western faction said the sky was blue, the Easterners said they're stupid, corrupt traitors, the sky is obviously green, and so forth. They could make modern political parties look downright rational. Oh boy, it's a good thing there's not an enormous crisis on the horizon or anything. But it didn't seem like there was. Korea had been peaceful and prosperous for 200 years. The 1400s were possibly the Korean Golden Age, a time of great learning and scientific advancement. King Sejong the Great created a remarkably efficient script for the Korean language, a script still used today as Hangul. The great inventor Zheng Yongsil developed astronomical machines, a chiming water clock, and a reliable rain gauge, all these wonderful inventions in the 1400s. Korea was the first country in the world to invent movable metal type for printing books using that Hangul script, and its pottery was famous across Asia for its beauty and quality. The Koreans were just a peaceful people doing their own thing and minding their own business. They had no idea what was coming. Because when it came to external threats, China and Korea shared two major concerns. The first were steppe nomads, the dangerous tribes that wandered the vast plains to the north. Steppe nomads were always the most dangerous threat, so they obviously got the most attention. Both China and Korea concentrated their military in the north, planning on stopping those invasions. The version of the Great Wall of China that we see today is much newer than people think. It was built by the Ming during the 1400s to hold off the steppe nomads. Now, the Mongols were still out there, but a different group of people called the Jurchens, a people who would later be called the Manchu, were the new big problem in the northern steppes. From their homeland in what is now northeast China, an area called Manchuria, the Jurchen were becoming more powerful under their war leader Nurhasai. He was unifying the tribes and placing lots of pressure on the Chinese and Korean northern borderlands. If war was coming from anywhere in the near future, both Big Brother and Little Brother figured it would be coming from Nurhasai and the Manchu to the north. The other big problem were the Wako Pirates. During the Japanese Age of War, a whole mess of pirates had built bases in the remote Japanese islands. It was the Age of War, who was going to stop them? And from these bases, they ravaged the coast of East Asia. The Wako were called Japanese pirates, but were actually mostly Chinese, with a whole bunch of other groups added on, including eventually uh, escaping black slaves from the Portuguese. So some of Najinga's countrymen might have ended up being pirates in Japan. Weird stuff happens in world history. But the Wako were an absolute menace, incredibly dangerous. At their worst, they could form out-and-out -out fleets and small armies. 
China and Korea both waged long, bitter military campaigns against the Wako pirates throughout the 1500s. My point is that to China and Korea, a large Japanese invasion didn't register as a real threat until it was too late. Japan had always been kind of an awkward neighbor, that much wasn't new, kind of weird and violent and off doing their own thing. Japan had an off-again, on-again relationship with China. Sometimes they acknowledged the Chinese world order, sometimes they rejected it, and tried to set up their own emperor as the equal of the Chinese emperor. And this was silly. The Chinese world order had dominated Asia forever. Trying to overthrow it was absurd. But lately, China and Korea hadn't heard much out of Japan. They knew that those weirdos on their oddball islands were having some sort of violent free-for-all, and this allowed them to write Japan off as a bunch of crude barbarians who were too busy fighting each other to do anything else. Like, it's just like the China and Korea looked over at Japan like, it's the Wild West over there, we don't know what's going on. They had no idea that some tiny little warlord was putting together an army hundreds of thousands strong of violent veteran samurai and soldiers and that he was looking at Korea and China like a kid looking at the most expensive toy in the store. Toyotomi Hideyoshi, after all, had come from nothing and wanted everything, and China, with its little brother Korea, was first on that list. His dream was about to become Korea's nightmare, because Hideyoshi was planning the Samurai Blitzkrieg that would begin the Imjin War. The origins of the Imjin War lay in the mind of Toyotomi Hideyoshi. Even before the unification of Japan was complete, he was openly talking about his dream of invading China, of leading Japan to conquer all of Asia. But why wasn't Japan enough? Well, one big reason is that Hideyoshi was an egotistical maniac who wanted to conquer the world. and. Well, that's pretty straightforward. There is a distinct air of Saturday morning cartoon villain to Toyotomi Hideyoshi. But there were other reasons. For one thing, Hideyoshi sat atop a pyramid of very ambitious, violent warlords who had followed him with the promise of glory and profit. But now the wars were over, and the glory and profits were gone. So it might be a good idea to give the daimyo a project, something to keep them occupied. A busy samurai is a happy samurai, and happy samurai don't plot against their boss. So Hideyoshi might have looked to overseas conquest to keep the peace at home. There was also the economic angle. Trade had used to flow between Japan and the Asian mainland. China had allowed Japanese ships to trade at the harbor of Ningbo, but in 1523, ships from two warring Japanese daimyo had ended up fighting in the middle of the harbor. These idiots ruined it for everyone because China closed Ningbo off to Japanese trade. And Hideyoshi wanted to force China to reopen its ports. Japan could trade with China peacefully, but that would mean submitting to China as a tributary. See, remember, Asia functioned on the rules of the Chinese world order. There was China, Big Brother, with its tributaries, a bunch of little brothers. To trade with China, you needed to at least go through the motions of becoming a tributary, but Hideyoshi refused to play the game by these rules. He would never, ever see himself as subordinate to China, or anyone. His ego would never allow it. 
and this was Hideyoshi's real goal in launching the Imjin War. He had reunified Japan by creating a new power structure with himself at the top, and he wanted to extend this to all of Asia. Hideyoshi wanted to create a Japanese world order ruled by himself to replace the Chinese world order. And his plans were massive. Hideyoshi talked casually about invading China, then India, then the rest of Asia. He said this like other people describe their daily errands. You know, go by the supermarket, get my tires rotated, conquer China, pick the kids up from soccer practice. Kinda seems like Hideyoshi didn't actually know a lot about the countries he wanted to conquer. Saying, yep, gonna conquer China, then India, reveals a kind of bonkers underestimation of the distances and numbers involved. So was Hideyoshi capable of conquering China, let alone India or Asia? Probably not, but he believed he could. Hideyoshi was delusional, but he was also brilliant, ruthless, and led the world's strongest army. Just because he was delusional didn't mean he wasn't very, very dangerous. The first step in Hideyoshi's grand plan of conquest would be the invasion of Korea. Now, Korea was never the main goal, but Korea was close to Japan, it was just a hop over the Straits of Tsushima, and Hideyoshi saw Korea as his highway to China. They could cooperate with his invasion, or they could be his first target. One way or another, Korea was item number one on the agenda. I want to drive this home. The Imjin War will take place in Korea. It is often just called Hideyoshi's Invasion of Korea, it is largely a Korean story. But Korea was never the main objective. Korea was intended to be, at most, a speed bump on the road to Beijing. And Hideyoshi would have been pleased as heck to just march through Korea peacefully, which meant submission. There were two categories of people in Hideyoshi's mind, those who had submitted and those who had yet to submit. So in 1587, as he was wrapping up the Age of War, Hideyoshi began to send diplomats demanding military access through Korea. And this put his diplomats in a dilemma. See, they knew what their boss wanted, but they also knew that what Hideyoshi wanted was far beyond what China or Korea would ever consider accepting. Japanese diplomats will have this problem throughout the Imjin War. Hideyoshi makes arrogant, unrealistic demands. His diplomats realize that these demands are completely out of the question, so they conceal or delete some of the worst bits to keep negotiations going. Then the Chinese or Koreans agree to these terms, only for Hideyoshi to get mad and reject the deal since they don't match up with his original demands. Now, there's always something to be said for tactful translations, right? There are times you don't want to repeat exactly what your boss said. I think of Return of the Jedi and C-3PO translating for Jabba the Hutt. He puts a polite veneer on the actual thing he's saying. But when the translations actively conceal or ignore key parts of the message, well, that can be bad. This is what happens when you're an egotistical maniac that everyone's afraid of. Hideyoshi's point man for negotiations with Korea was So Yoshitoshi, the daimyo of Tsushima. The islands of Tsushima lay between Korea and Japan, a sea passage known as the Straits of Tsushima. The ruling So family had a long relationship with Korea, and all trade between Japan and Korea flowed through the islands of Tsushima. Hideyoshi ordered So Yoshitoshi, <laughs> sounds like it rhymes, to deliver an ultimatum to Korea. Submit to his authority, 
by sending a tribute mission and assist Japan in the conquest of China or face invasion. Join us or die. But the So clan didn't want to make the Koreans mad, so they changed Hideyoshi's message in one crucial way. They modified it from demanding a tribute mission, which implied subordination, to a goodwill mission, which just implied like a diplomatic relationship. So they took Hideyoshi's original message and just gussied it up a little bit, but in a way that changed the original meaning. And when Hideyoshi's ultimatum arrived, the king of Korea, King Sonjo, and his ministers were more confused than angry. They knew almost nothing about Hideyoshi. They just knew he wasn't the emperor or the shogun. What, what the heck is a taiko? Either way, his demands were completely unacceptable, just downright bizarre. Who did this guy think he was? The Koreans were loyal tributaries of the Ming. They would never submit to Japan. The idea was bizarre, absurd. King Sanjo rejected Hideyoshi's ultimatum and refused to even send a response. Hideyoshi was so angry that he ordered the Japanese diplomat and his entire family executed, which is a wee bit of an overreaction in my humble opinion, and probably explains why his diplomats were always so dishonest. So Yoshitoshi was ordered to try again. This time he went personally with a large entourage to deliver yet another ultimatum. This is part of what Hideyoshi's ultimatum said. When my mother conceived me, it was by a beam of sunlight that entered her bosom in a dream. After my birth, a fortune teller said that all the land the sun shone on would be mine when I became a man, and that my fame would spread beyond the four seas. I have never fought without conquering, and when I strike, I always win. I will make a leap and land in China and lay my laws upon her. I shall go by way of Korea, and if your soldiers join me in this invasion, you will have shown your neighborly spirit. I am determined that my name shall pervade the three kingdoms. What? You, you tell me this guy is an ego problem? No way! Of course, the Koreans found this letter to be just as bad as the first one, but now they were getting worried. Yeah, the Japanese dictator was obviously a few sushi rolls short of a picnic, but maybe this was something they should be worried about? So King Sanjo agreed to send a goodwill mission, notably not a tribute mission, and so Yoshitoshi gave the Koreans a few gifts in exchange. Among them were a pair of arquebus muskets, which the Koreans had never seen before. The Koreans looked at them, said, huh, weird, and then stored them in the royal armory. They would still be there, untouched, when the Imjin War began a few years later. Like, guys, come on. This is obvious foreshadowing. Sometimes history really does read like a screenplay. The Korean delegation arrived in Japan in 1590. It was led by two men, one each from the western and eastern factions of the Korean court. When the Japanese dictator finally did appear to meet the Korean diplomats after weeks of delay, it set the stage for one of the strangest negotiations in diplomatic history. Hideyoshi received the Koreans in a dark hall. Here they first laid eyes on the tycoon of Japan, a short, dark, wrinkled little man with gleaming eyes. They ate a simple meal of rice cakes and sake. Hideyoshi received their letter, but treated the diplomats with silence. Then he just stood up and left. He came back a few minutes later in peasant's clothing, holding a baby, his newborn son. Hideyoshi wandered around the hall singing to his baby like no one else was there. 
I imagine the Koreans looking at each other wondering if they were on like a reality show, like Impractical Jokers or something. This all ended predictably when Hideyoshi's son peed on him, causing the dictator to laugh and pass the infant off to a servant before leaving. And that was the Korean diplomat's first and only meeting with Toyotomi Hideyoshi. But this diplomatic summit turned diaper change had two big effects. First, Hideyoshi believed that the Koreans had come to submit. His bizarre and insulting behavior was a weird way of demonstrating his authority over them. But the Koreans hadn't come to submit. It was a goodwill mission, not a tribute mission. His own diplomat's deceptions had caused him to believe otherwise. But the second effect was that Hideyoshi's strange behavior caused the Koreans to underestimate the threat. The diplomats came back to Seoul with a weird story about a barbaric little man who let his baby son piss on him. The Western faction diplomats said that Hideyoshi was crude, yeah, but he was also dangerous. Korea needs to prepare for war. But the Eastern faction diplomat disagreed automatically because Western faction guys said that, I have a different opinion, no matter what. Hideyoshi's obviously stupid. He's ignorant. He poses no real danger. And now those factions within the Korean court became a serious, serious problem. Korea faced a major threat, objectively, but because one faction's dude said they didn't, it became politicized. It became a political issue. Obvious threat turned political. National defense was transformed into a stupid slap fight, with the Western faction saying, we have to prepare for war, and the Eastern faction saying, uh, nah uh It's almost like pointless political infighting can put your nation at risk. But both factions agreed that they needed to respond to Hideyoshi's demands. Here is how the Koreans responded after four years of diplomacy with the Taiko of Japan. We shall certainly not desert our lord and father nation and join with a neighboring nation in her unjust and unwise military undertaking. Moreover, to invade another nation is an act of which men of culture and intellectual attainments should feel ashamed. We urgently hope that you will reflect on these things and come to understand your own situation as well as ours. We will conclude this letter by saying that your proposed undertaking is the most reckless, imprudent, and daring of any of which we have ever heard. The Korean message made Hideyoshi very, very angry. From his point of view, he had received Korea's submission, and this was a breach of trust. The insulting tone of the letter made it even worse. The tycoon ordered his daimyo to prepare for war. He ordered a massive castle built at Nagoya, positioned on Japan's coast facing the Straits of Tsushima, to serve as his headquarters. Hideyoshi was going to invade China, and not even these impudent, faithless Koreans would stand in his way. He had come from nothing. He would have everything. The Koreans knew that war of some kind was coming. They didn't realize exactly how much danger they were in, but they did understand that Hideyoshi was aggressive and crazy. They sent a message to China telling them, hey, something's going on over here, there might be trouble. But Korea just didn't do much to prepare for war, and this was because of the Chosun court's two-party system. The eastern faction was currently in power, and they downplayed the Japanese threat. They said that any war would just be a big Wako pirate raid at worst, and that would be easy to handle. One member of the eastern faction was not so optimistic. At this point, we need to introduce an important character in this series, a high-ranking Korean official named Yoo Song-yong. 
Yu Songnyong was one of King Sanjo's ministers throughout the Imjin War, and he wrote a comprehensive record of the conflict. He was also one of the handful of Korean ministers who could put party politics aside and work for the good of the kingdom. So even though he was a member of the Eastern faction, Yu Songnyong was one of the only people doing anything to prepare Korea for war. Now, in theory, Korea had a strong military. In practice, 200 years of peace, party politics, corruption, and sheer apathy had caused readiness to drop. There were thousands of soldiers on paper, but the official numbers were pretty much always wrong due to corruption and negligence. It was anybody's best guess how many troops Korea actually had available. Discipline was an afterthought, training was non-existent, morale was low, and the fortresses were crumbling. The officers had almost no experience or real training. Yu Sung-neong tried to get the government to fix these problems, but no one really cared. No one had the energy. It would cost too much money, it was unpopular, it wasn't important, so on and so forth. Now, Korea was fully initiated into the gunpowder age. It learned about gunpowder warfare before Japan did. They had many models of cannons and artillery. The Korean Navy was extremely impressive. It had been built to fight the Wako pirates, and most of its warships were armed with heavy cannon. But Korea had nothing like the Japanese arquebus musket. We've already seen how the Koreans looked at the arquebus the Japanese had given them as basically a weird toy. So despite opportunities to improve their technology, the Koreans didn't really think they needed to. Trouble is, of course, you don't know you need it until you need it. The commanders were nothing to write home about either. Most of the generals were kept in Seoul because the government didn't trust them. After all, their entire dynasty had been founded by a rebellious general who overthrew the last dynasty. But this meant that they rarely got out to the provinces. They didn't know anything about the troops they were supposed to lead. Most of the generals had achieved their position through favoritism, nepotism, or outright bribery. Even the supposedly good commanders, like General Sin Ip, were lazy and overconfident. When Yu Sung-neong asked Sin Ip what he thought about the Japanese military strength, Sin Ip told him he didn't care. Which is not a thing to say when you're a general, right? Yu Sung-neong responded, That is not the right attitude. Formerly, the Japanese depended on short weapons alone, but now they are joined with muskets, which are effective at a distance. We cannot treat the affair lightly. And General Sin Ip responded with, even if they have muskets, they can't hit anything with them. <sighs> oh boy. Eventually, the government did muster more troops. They even started the program to revamp the fortress system. But for all of Yu Sung-neong's efforts, this was too little, and it was about to be too late. But Yu Sung-neong did succeed in one area, far more than anyone expected. He had an old childhood friend, a junior officer named Yi Sun-shin, not doing much of anything on the northern border. Yu Sung-neong got his friend Yi Sun-shin as a, a new job as the commander of the left navy of Chola province, one of the fleets stationed on the south coast of Korea. Is that going to be important later? Yes. Yes, that's going to be very important later. Because Yi Sun-shin is, alongside Toyotomi Hideyoshi, the other most important person in this story. And we'll talk a lot more about him before the end of this episode. But still, on the verge of a major colossal war, Korea was as unprepared as any country in history for a major conflict. Things might have been different if they'd known exactly how much danger they were in. 
because the army Hideyoshi assembled at Nagoya Castle in 1592 was the largest military force ever assembled in the 16th century. Just for comparison, only four years earlier in a world away, the famous Spanish Armada tried to invade England with 24,000 men and 130 ships. Hideyoshi's initial invasion force numbered 158,000 men, with thousands more in reserve, carried on 700 ships of various sizes. This is an absolutely gigantic force for this time period, just a human chainsaw of swords and muskets. No other country in the world mustered an army this large. Not China, not the Ottoman Empire, not the Spanish, not anybody. But they weren't all samurai. I'm going to call it the Samurai Blitzkrieg, but they weren't all samurai. The samurai themselves, the warrior class of Japan, the men who wore the heavy armor and carried the katanas and spears, they only made up a portion of the army. The rank and file consisted of the ashigaru, or light foot. These were peasant infantrymen, but far from being just farmers with armor, the ashigaru were long-service soldiers, transformed by civil war into hardened, disciplined fighters. They were armed with a variety of weapons, including spears and bows. But at least a third of Hideyoshi's Ashigaru now carried the arquebus musket. The musket-armed Ashigaru, not the much more famous samurai, would be the real cutting edge of the Japanese invasion of Korea. We'll talk a lot more about Hideyoshi's samurai army this Friday in a supplemental short round, so keep an eye out for that. Hideyoshi organized this massive invasion into divisions, each of which would be led by one of his trusted daimyo, the Japanese warlords. All the daimyo had the common personality traits required to survive and thrive in the age of war. They were ambitious, they were aggressive, they were competitive, and they were absolutely ruthless. I think I said once that people went hard in the 16th century, and that pretty much applies to everyone in this series, but especially the Japanese daimyo. Hideyoshi selected two daimyo in particular, his two most trusted and capable subordinates, to spearhead the invasion. Both these guys will be important characters for the rest of this series. Commanding the 1st Division was the 33-year-old Konishi Yukinaga, a masterful campaign planner and an expert diplomat. But Konishi was unusual, even for a daimyo, because he was a Christian, or in Japanese, Kirishitan. Konishi Yukinaga was one of a minority of Japanese introduced to and baptized in the Catholic faith by Jesuit priests from Portugal. Now this didn't mean he wasn't still going to murder everything in sight, he was a daimyo, that was a job requirement. But at least he felt bad about it, so that's better, right? But Konishi would invade Korea side by side with his arch rival, his competitor, his least favorite person in the world the leader of the 2nd Division, the 30-year-old Kato Kiyomasa. Kato was a super-devout Buddhist of the Nichiren sect. This was a particularly militant form of Buddhism compared to the peaceful stereotypes. Kato Kiyomasa was a legendary samurai, famously hot-headed, aggressive, and personally ferocious in battle. He would later be remembered by the Koreans as the Demon General, and we will see why. But he made up for this by having the fashion sense of a maniac. He and all his soldiers wore a distinctive type of helmet that looked like he was wearing a banana on top of his head. Kato Kiyomasa's enormous mustache and beard and crazy banana hat might look funny, but they'd be the last thing you would ever see. Now, Konishi Yukinaga and Kato Kiyomasa 
hated each other. They had a rivalry that went back years. So it was kind of funny that Hideyoshi put Church Boy and Banana Hat as the commanders of his initial invasion force. But Hideyoshi probably wanted their rivalry to generate healthy competition. Well, given definition of healthy, since the competition was how quickly can you kill lots of people. But Kanishi Yukinaga and Kato Kiyomasa, Church Boy and Banana Hat, were only the tip of the spear. Units were assembling from all over Japan, tens of thousands of armored foot soldiers with spears and bows and muskets, led by their samurai warlords in their beetle-like suits of heavy armor. It was an amazingly lethal and astonishingly bloodthirsty army. Any samurai code of honor that might have held them back had been eroded by a century of savage civil war. When the samurai blitzkrieg hit Korea, it would be war without limits or rules. The stunning cruelty of Japanese behavior in Korea is gonna kinda be a constant in this series. People went hard in all the worst ways in the 16th century. Now, Hideyoshi would not lead this invasion in person. He would direct events from Nagoya Castle in Japan, leaving it up to his subordinate generals to take Korea out and clear the path to China. When the time was right, Hideyoshi would cross over and take charge. Until then, his generals would have to work together. Hideyoshi even held a war council, the council I referred to in the prologue of this episode, where he showed the daimyo which province of Korea each of them would occupy, based on a massive multicolored map positioned on the floor. The Taiko's overall plan featured a two-pronged attack. Kanishi Yukinaga's first and Kato Kiyomasa's second divisions would land in Korea and strike north as the twin spearheads of the invasion, with the other divisions landing and fanning out behind them to occupy their designated provinces. Meanwhile, the navy would pillage its way up Korea's southern and western coasts to link up with the ground forces. The navy was critical, since the enormous army required to invade China could only be supplied by sea. The army and navy, together, would form the two arms of the Great Invasion. Once they had overrun Korea and combined, Hideyoshi could continue his victorious march towards China. The Japanese war machine, the greatest army and greatest navy ever assembled in the 16th century, had one major weakness, and that was the navy. Unlike the Koreans, the Japanese had very few purpose-built warships. Most of Hideyoshi's ships were led by former Wako pirates, men who knew the coasts, currents, and winds of Japan and Korea pretty well. But the Age of War had seen very little naval combat. Few Japanese ships had any cannons. Most of them were light, ocean-going vessels that weren't really suited for the coastal waters of Korea. The main method of Japanese fighting on the sea was to throw missile weapons at their enemies, usually bows and muskets, before boarding the enemy's ship and fighting hand-to-hand. -hand. The Japanese Navy was vulnerable to a determined, dangerous enemy fleet, but that was just a risk they would have to take. But by April 1592, everything was ready. Hideyoshi sat on his throne at Nagoya Castle, this strange, crazy, brilliant little man for whom ruling Japan was not enough. His massive armada set sail towards Korea. It was the largest and most dangerous military force anywhere in the world, and its destination was a small, peaceful kingdom that never dreamed of what was headed its way. In the Korean calendar, 1592 was the year Imjin, the year of the water dragon. Korea would always remember the disaster that was about to unfold 
as the War of 1592. In their language, the Imjin Wairan, the Imjin War. So, real quick, what's going on in 1592 when the Imjin War begins? When is this exactly? Well, let's see. Queen Elizabeth I rules England, and people are flocking to the London theaters and to see the works of a new playwright named William Shakespeare. The Ottoman Empire is at the peak of its power, and the Spanish Inquisition is at full throttle. People in Europe are debating about whether the sun revolves around the earth, or vice versa. It is still 15 years before the founding of Jamestown, the first permanent English settlement in America in Virginia. And across the world from Europe and America, the Imjin War is about to begin. May 23, 1592 was a normal spring morning for the people and garrison of Busan, Korea's largest seaport. Busan sits on the southeast tip of Korea, directly facing Japan and the islands of Tsushima. So it was about to be ground zero for the Samurai Blitzkrieg, because early that morning, Konishi Yukinaga set sail from Tsushima. The sky filled with sails as 400 ships, carrying the 20,000 men of his 1st Division, arrived in Busan's harbor. The Koreans should have been able to stop the Japanese in their tracks. Two Korean admirals, Wan Gyun and Pak Hong, had 150 well-armed Korean warships at their disposal. But these guys were about as useful as an inflatable dartboard. Pak Hong was paralyzed by indecision, while Wan Gyun insisted against all evidence this had to be a large trade fleet of some kind. Gee, did all the so swords and guns give it away? So at the very moment when a bold move could have wrecked the Japanese invasion, the two admirals on the scene did nothing. Shang Pal, the local army commander, was another story. He immediately prepared Busan Castle for combat. A Japanese ship came rowing up to the city with So Yoshitoshi, the daimyo of Tsushima, on board. Yoshitoshi basically told Shang Paul, Hey guys, this is your last chance. Let us pass on through to China, or it's war. Shang Paul's silence was all the reply that the Japanese needed. The Imjin War was on. At 4 a.m. on May 24, 1592, the Japanese invasion began. Konishi Yukinaga, So Yoshitoshi, and their 1st Division came crashing onto the shores of Korea. The sea sprayed over the hardened warriors as they waded onto the rocky beach. The samurai, with helmets painted with grotesque faces and topped with horns or antlers, drew their long katanas, and the ranks of Ashigaru loaded their muskets and hefted their spears. Their army was a mass of black armor and red banners, the kind of thing that might have someone asking, Hey y'all, are, are, are we the villains? Are we the bad guys in this story? Anyway, the Japanese attacked. The Ashigaru fired volleys of musket fire at the parapets, forcing the Koreans to keep their heads down while other troops raised ladders and swarmed up the walls of Busan Castle. The Korean archers found their bows outranged by the whirlwind of musket fire, and the ferocity of the samurai assaults shocked the barely trained Korean soldiers. The sun rose, and Busan Castle fell. 
The Koreans fought bravely and killed many attackers, but not nearly enough to stop the Japanese onslaught. Shang Paul was fearless in his distinctive black armor, but when he was killed by a musket ball, all discipline collapsed. Shang Paul's concubine, 18-year-old Ai Hyang, wailed and committed suicide over his body as the Japanese poured in. One samurai described Japanese behavior when they captured Busan. We found people running all over the place and trying to hide in the gaps between the houses. Those who could not conceal themselves went off toward the east gate, where they clasped their hands together, and there came to our ears the Chinese expression, Mano, Mano, which was probably them asking for mercy. Taking no notice of what they heard, our troops rushed forward and cut them down, slaughtering them as a blood sacrifice to the god of war. Both men, women, and even dogs and cats were beheaded. Yep, we are off to a great start. The Battle of Busan, the first engagement of the Imjin War, set the tone for this conflict. Absolute lack of mercy, barely even pretending to behave according to anything like a samurai code of honor. Hideyoshi's dream had become Korea's nightmare. The two Korean admirals were apparently just horrified by what they observed. They could have retreated to fight another day, or even tried to attack. Instead, Admiral Pak Hong made the pants-on-head stupid decision to scuttle his own fleet and run like hell back to Seoul. Wan Gyun panicked when he saw some fishing boats, thought they were Japanese battleships, then sunk most of his fleet as well, and retreated with only four ships. The majority of the Korean Navy now sat at the bottom of the ocean, leaving the Japanese in total control of the sea between Korea and Japan. I have no other word for this but cowardice. I call this first phase of the Imjin War, the phase that just began with the capture of Busan, the Samurai Blitzkrieg, for a few reasons. Because it looks a heck of a lot like the German invasions in early World War II, that I will note they didn't actually call Blitzkrieg, just a good word to use. Number one, speed. The Japanese moved amazingly fast for armies on foot like a metal murder train. Number two, a massive advantage in combat power over their early opponents, who suffered from inexperience, poor leadership, and technological inferiority. Third, the sheer brutality and inhumanity that followed the Blitzkrieg, total disregard for human life, wholesale slaughter of prisoners, and horrible mistreatment of the population. The fourth, well, the fourth was the weakness of both the Samurai and the German Blitzkrieg, and that would be logistics. But we'll get to that. Panic spread like a pandemic from the fall of Busan. Governors abandoned their cities, soldiers ran for the hills, entire garrisons vanished overnight, allowing the invaders to march in with barely a fight. On the other hand, there were displays of astonishing courage. A few days after the capture of Busan, Kanishi Yukinaga led the 1st Division to the town of Tongnei. Its governor was a low-ranking civilian official named Song Sang-hyun, just a random dude, not even anybody special. But when Kanishi demanded that he let them pass or die, Song replied with a line famous in Korean history. It is easy for me to die, but it is difficult to let you pass. Basically, bring it. And the Japanese brought it. The defenders of Tongnei fought like demons, even the women, casting arrows and spears and rocks from the walls. But they had no response to the fire of the muskets and the fury of the armored samurai. 
Kanishi Yukunaga personally led his troops over the walls, and Song Sankyon resisted to the end, holding on to his scepter of authority and staring into the distance as the samurai hacked him limb from limb. The Japanese repeated the slaughters of Busan at Tongnei, leaving the city a burning wreck. Even the courage of Changpal and Song Sengyon seemed pointless. No one could stop the Japanese. They had better weapons, larger numbers, combat experience, and ruthless efficiency. Korea had been a peaceful, quiet kingdom a few days ago, totally unprepared for this bloodthirsty hellstorm to tear their country apart. One Korean minister said, We face today an enemy equipped with divine power and skill. We have nobody to cope with them. I myself have no alternative but to meet death. According to the Japanese plan, Kanishi Yukinaga and his first division were supposed to wait for the arrival of Kato Kiyomasa and his second division before marching north. But Kanishi decided to forget the plan for two reasons. First, to maintain momentum against the crumbling Korean resistance, and second, to stick it to his arch-rival Kato Kiyomasa and seize all the glory for himself. The first division charged north up the road like a gleaming armored centipede, leaving Busan and Tongnei in the dust. By May 29th, the Christian daimyo had crossed Kyongsang province and was halfway to the Korean capital of Seoul. And the Korean court in Seoul was panicking. All their lack of preparation was coming back to haunt them. The king sent the famous general Sin Ip south to gather troops and block Kanishi's advance at the vital Choryong Pass, the last great choke point on the road to Seoul. Remember, this was the guy that said that even if the Japanese had muskets, they probably couldn't hit anything with them. Ugh, famous last words, right? As Sin Ip raised his army, his fellow general Yi Il tried to slow the Japanese down. Yi Il arrived at the town of Sangju with only 800 recruits. He figured he would have several days to prepare a defense, but he was right in the crosshairs of the Samurai Blitzkrieg. Kanishi's 1st Division, marching at demonic speed, chewed into him on June 3, 1592, ten days after they had landed in Korea. The musketeers were in the lead, and they leveled their barrels at 100 yards and fired volley after volley, their shots echoing off the mountains. The poor, untrained Korean soldiers never stood a chance. They panicked and scattered, led by Yi Il himself, who ran to warn Sin Ip of the steel juggernaut headed his way. Kanishi Yukinaga's men slaughtered anyone left alive on the field of Sangju, dusted themselves off, and marched towards the Choryong Pass. Even as the Japanese were routing Yi Il's tiny force at Sangju, Sin Ip had arrived with his orders to defend the Shoryang Pass. He had 8,000 regular soldiers, including a large number of heavy cavalry. Now, the pass could have been held pretty easily. It was a good defensive position. But instead, Sin Ip looked for a place where he could use the heavy cavalry to his advantage. This is against the device of Yi Il, who was like, dude, listen to me, these guys are no joke. Sin Ip believed that a good cavalry charge will send the Japanese running. He selected an open field near the fortified town of Chengju, which he thought was a great place to use his heavy horsemen. But to ensure that his troops didn't panic, since panic seemed to be catching, he positioned his army with its back to the river, a tactic recommended in Sun Tzu's Art of War to force an army to fight. 
This made some sense because Sin Ip's army partially consisted of recent conscripts, men who would be apt to run. The downside of this idea was that if the army was beaten, it would be destroyed. On June 6, 1592, Kanishi Yukinaga and his first division came charging out of the Choyang Pass like a metal bowling ball. The Japanese were coming off two weeks of hard marching, but they were still full of energy and fire. Kanishi advanced with musketeers up front backed up by the spearmen and archers. His troops flanked the Koreans on both sides in the standard kakayoku or crane wing formation. The Battle of Shangju wasn't even fair. Musket volleys ripped through the barely organized Koreans. Sin Ip tried to lead his forces in the cavalry charge that he believed would win the battle, but they were torn to pieces by the combined fire of Japanese muskets and bows as they got closer. When the Koreans began to panic, the samurai charged, stabbing with their long spears and slashing with their katanas. The Koreans routed, fleeing to every point of the compass, splashing through rice paddies and trying to escape across the river. Many of them drowned in the river's currents, and the rest were seized and slaughtered and beheaded by their conquerors. Then the Japanese lined up their severed heads in rows for Kanishi Yukinaga to inspect. Sin Ip escaped the battle, but he could not bear to face the king after his terrible defeat. He threw himself into the river and let his heavy armor drag him to his death. The battles of Sangju and Chengju were a catastrophe for the land of the morning calm. The Imjin War was two weeks old, Korea's two most prominent generals had been crushed, and their army had been blown apart like it was made of tissue paper. And this had just been the spearhead, only the first division. Kanishi Yukinaga and his men were the tip of the iceberg. Back at Busan, thousands of samurai and Ashigaru were landing every day. Kanishi Yukinaga and his first division were still resting on the battlefield of Chengju when Kato Kiyomasa and his second division called up. Kato and his banana hat had landed in Busan three days after the Imjin War began. He was furious that Kanishi hadn't waited for him, assuming correctly that his rival wanted all the glory for himself, and he pushed his second division in forced marches day and night to catch up with his rival. He vented his wrath at being left behind on the helpless Korean citizens in his path. Now the two rival daimyos sat down to prepare for the advance to Seoul. As they planned their march, Kato began to make fun of Kanishi's background. Kanishi didn't have a long samurai lineage like Kato did. He was a new, new guy. His insults got to be so blatant that Kanishi reached for his sword and almost attacked Kato before their fellow commanders forced them apart. Reminds me of when I put my cats in the same carrier. You can almost hear these guys hissing at each other. But once Church Boy and Banana Hat had been prevented from killing each other, they were persuaded to channel their rivalry into something more productive. The two daimyo decided to take their divisions on a race to Seoul to see who would be the first to capture the capital of Korea. Sin Ip and his army had been all that stood between the Japanese and the capital, and when news arrived of the Battle of Chunju, the city began to lose its collective mind. Throngs of people fled in every direction, families carrying children in their arms, pushing carts full of all their worldly possessions, and running for their lives. Even the city's guards vanished into the hills. Panic is contagious, and Seoul was experiencing a super-spreader event. Now, King Sanjo and his court had to make a painful decision. Should they abandon the city? 
They couldn't defend it. The soldiers were running off before the orders reached them. Even if they had stayed, there was no hope of standing up to the Japanese onslaught. But if the king ran out on the capital, his approval rating was going to sink like a concrete boat. After angry debates that lasted for hours, the king and his royal court decided to pack up and evacuate on June 9th. The citizens of Seoul were furious that their king was abandoning them. They lined the streets to cry and yell at their king, his ministers, and their ladies, even throwing stones and rotten fruit at their ruler. The royal procession turned into a pathetic mess as rain and mud bogged them down. The pampered women and ministers of the inner court, most of whom had never experienced an ounce of hardship in their lives, cried like children as their silk robes disintegrated in the downpour. King Sanjo and his court ran north to the old capital of Kaesong, then kept going. Only a few ministers, like Yu Song Neong, had any sensible advice. They were talking about rallying the country and calling for Chinese help. But the sad, wet Korean government continued their retreat north, away from the Samurai Blitzkrieg. Seoul fell into madness. Some citizens, angry at the failures of their government, looted the city. They grabbed riches from the palaces, destroyed the record buildings, and set the king's palaces on fire. One by one, the Palace of Shining Happiness, the Palace of Illustrious Virtue, and the Palace of Glorious Blessings lit up like birthday candles. Panic and terror consumed Seoul before a single Japanese soldier arrived. Around midnight on the night of June 11th, Kanishi Yukinaga and his first division arrived within sight of Seoul's walls. They had won the race. The samurai found the city ruined, smoking, nearly deserted. The Japanese captured Korea's capital without a peep of resistance. The second division arrived a few hours later, and Kato Kiyomasa hit the roof he was so mad that his rival had beaten him again. Phase 1 of the Samurai Blitzkrieg was complete. Konishi's 1st Division had marched at a staggering pace of 280 miles in 20 days. They had blasted Korea's army into ribbons, they had taken the capital in less than a month, and they had scared most of the navy into literally sinking itself. And the casualties had been almost zilch. It had been like taking candy from a drunk baby. If this was the worst that Hideyoshi's army could expect, world domination might be within his reach after all. Because by now, the entire invasion force had landed at Busan. Two divisions marched north to join the spearheads at Seoul, while the other five fanned out to secure the other provinces. The Japanese fleet, the second prong of the invasion, was pushing west along the southern coast of Korea, pillaging and burning as they went. And Korea was falling apart. Bands of deserters turned into bandits, looting and marauding throughout the countryside. Floods of crying, panicking refugees filled the roads. Some Koreans even turned traitor, selling out their own people to the invaders. The Japanese were inhumanly cruel. Men were beheaded, women raped, villages ransacked. But one of the greatest cruelties was their taking of captives. Korean men were forced into labor, and Korean women were captured to be used as sex slaves or sold to merchants back in Japan. One refugee recorded the horrible mistreatment of Korea's women. Heads up, this is why I had the content warning. I have heard that the Japanese have taken young, beautiful women from families in Kyongsang province and loaded them onto five boats. Before sending them to their country, they combed their hair and put on powder and black eyeliner. 
because they all feared death, they followed these instructions. In actuality, these women had all been repeatedly raped. Those who had not been considered desirable were then repeatedly gang-raped. This insane violence, this inhuman behavior, was all the outcome, all the consequence of Hideyoshi's ambition and ego. This was what a dream of world conquest looks like at the sharp end, to a peaceful country and an innocent people who had never imagined that this could happen to them. And this is what war always brings. Starvation, disease, hardship, and suffering. Violence, especially violence against the helpless, usually meaning women. Even the cleanest wars. But the Imjin War was especially cruel, even by the standards of its day. Some of the stuff I've read about this conflict sound like it comes out of the World Wars, or Vietnam, or Rwanda. The Samurai Blitzkrieg, like its German counterpart, carried some of humanity's darkest acts in its wake. After a few weeks of rest, the samurai commanders planned the next phase of the operation. Kanishi Yukonaga's 1st Division would advance northwest and capture Korea's two ancient capitals, Kaesong and Pyongyang. At the same time, Kato Kiyomasa would conquer the far northeastern province of Hamgyong, including its distant border with the Manchu tribes. These would be preliminary moves for the conquest of China. After all, it looked like Korea was pretty much finished. All they needed to do was mop up. Next stop, Beijing. The Samurai Blitzkrieg rolled out yet again. They crossed the Imjin River, which is one of the major landmarks separating North and South Korea, after a tough battle against brave but doomed Korean resistance. Kanishi and Kato moved on past the present-day DMZ into modern North Korea. Kato, his second division, and his banana hat went northeast into the wilderness of Hamgyong province, and they marched out of today's episode. We will catch up with the psychotic Kato Kiyomasa adventures next week. In the meantime, Kanishi Yukonaga's 1st Division marched north at their usual freight train speed, sacking city after city and driving King Sanjo and the Korean court towards the Chinese border. The Japanese stormed the Taedong River and scattered yet another Korean army, then came on so fast towards the walls of Pyongyang that the city was abandoned overnight. No Korean army had the ability, or morale, to resist the Christian daimyo and his lightning division. On July 20th, 1592, Kanishi Yukonaga and the 1st Division entered the deserted city of Pyongyang, capturing massive amounts of supplies. Korea's last great city had fallen. King Sanjo and his court fled to Yuiju, a town on the Yalu River, the traditional border between Korea and China. Within two months, the Japanese had almost run Korea's king out of his own country. Sanjo considered fleeing all the way into Chinese territory, but his minister, Yu Songnyong, told him, If your majesty steps even one foot out of Korea, the kingdom will no longer be yours. Sanjo had already sent multiple messages to the Chinese, begging for assistance. Hey, listen, big bro, it's little bro. Come bail us out and hurry, because in a few months there won't be a Korea left. And what was left? Korea's capitals were taken, its cities abandoned, its armies destroyed, its men beheaded or enslaved, its women ravaged or taken captive. The Samurai Blitzkrieg had overrun Korea in less time than it takes some people to finish a Netflix series. Their country was on the brink of ceasing to exist. 
and Toyotomi Hideyoshi, back at Nagoya Castle in Japan, was over the moon. He was already drawing up plans for the invasion of China. He basically had Korea in his rearview mirror. He wrote happily to his wife and family about the arrangements he would make when he was in Beijing, and drew maps of which daimyo would get which conquered territories. There was nothing that Hideyoshi and his amazing, terrible, horrible army could not do. Maybe someone who came from nothing really could have everything. The sky was the limit. There was just one little problem. See, the Samurai Blitzkrieg had come very far, very fast. But even as Kanishi Yukinaga's division patted themselves on the back for seizing Pyongyang, they didn't realize that this was the end of the road. Everywhere, all across Korea, the Japanese invasion was grinding to a halt. From the lowless Ashigaru with his spear, to the Grand Warlord himself in Nagoya Castle, everyone began to receive the news. Something had gone wrong. Someone had thrown a wrench into Hideyoshi's war machine. How could the mightiest army in the world be stopped at its moment of triumph? The answer was that the Korean Navy had come back from the dead. And it was led by a man of courage and genius, the man who would become Korea's national hero, the man who more than any other single person would ruin Hideyoshi's dream of a Japanese world order. His name was Yi Sun Shin. So far in this series, there has been a single dominant figure, the military dictator, the Taiko of Japan, the man who came from nothing and wanted everything, Toyotomi Hideyoshi. But now it's time to introduce the other great personality of the Imjin War. A simple soldier, a patriot, to whom duty and loyalty mattered more than ambition or ego. Hideyoshi's hubris met its nemesis in Yi Sun Shin. Yi Sun Shin was born in 1545 to a family of minor Korean nobility. His early life is kind of vague. There are loads of Korean folktales of his early leadership and military brilliance, but most of these are almost certainly made up, kind of like the whole George Washington cherry tree business. What we do know is that Yi Sun Shin was an impressive young man, tall, intelligent, and excellent archer. He disappointed his family by choosing a military career instead of the Neo-Confucian civil service, which was where all the smart kids were supposed to go. Basically, Yi was a super bright kid who chose ROTC instead of the Ivy League. Yi Sun Shin's early military career was average. He was obviously smart, capable, competent, but that didn't always matter in the military of Joseon, Korea, where connections and family ties were the main qualifications for promotion wasn't what you knew, but who you knew. Luckily, Yi Sun Shin did know someone, his childhood friend, the king's top minister, Yu Song Nyong. But the big thing holding Yi back was that he wasn't, well, a brown noser. He was a man of unusual moral integrity who was kinda too honest. He refused to give anyone special treatment, he didn't cover up mistakes, he didn't falsify reports, and all this earned him a reputation as a goody-two-shoes snitch. His loyalty and duty to the disservice of his king made him a lot of friends, but also a lot of enemies. 
Yi Sunshin did the right thing, no matter who it hurt, and that would come back to bite him. But even with a nearly perfect record, including some major battlefield successes against the Manchu on the northern border, Yi Sunshin's career was at a dead end. He had offended too many important people, he refused to suck up to his superiors, he saw officers of less ability but better connections get promoted over him. Yi Sun-shin only stayed in the service out of his deep-seated sense of duty to his king and his country. He did have a happy family, which probably helped him keep going a lot. The classic Korean nuclear family of a man, his wife, his two concubines, and his five sons and two daughters between them. Now, that is a version of the Brady Bunch I would watch. A wife and two concubines, endless recipe for sitcom plots. But in 1591, Yi Sun-shin called a lucky break. Yu Song-nyong, desperately trying to get Korea ready for the war he knew was coming, plucked his childhood friend out of obscurity and put him in charge of the left navy of Chola province, stationed at Yosu. It was one of the four major naval commands on the southern coast of Korea. Yi Sun-shin's promotion seemed like an odd choice. After all, he had spent most of his career on the northern border. He had almost no naval experience whatsoever. But as it turned out, Yi Sun-shin's naval appointment was the most important hiring decision in Korean history. Yi Sun-shin, like his friend Yu Song-yong, was convinced that war was coming. He didn't pay attention to the political strife back at Seoul. Instead, his dedication to duty and his country motivated him to do everything possible to prepare for war. He studied naval tactics. He scraped up resources to arm and equip his fleet. Yi Sun-shin had to recruit his own sailors, build his own ships, forge his own cannons. The central government wasn't giving them to him, he did it himself. He rebuilt the coastal fortresses and stockpiled supplies. He restored the discipline in his fleet, using harsh methods including flogging for minor offenses. But that was just par for the course in Asian militaries. The Chinese classics all recommended execution for even the slightest infraction, so Yi Sun-shin wasn't nearly as bad as the regulations allowed. If other Korean leaders had shown one-tenth of his energy, the Japanese probably never would have gotten farther than Busan. But the result of all of this preparation was that when war came, Yi Sun-shin would have a well-armed, well-trained squadron of warships at his command. This included 24 of the large multi-decked fighting ships called Panok Son, the battleships of the Korean Navy. These were 80-foot-long vessels, built of sturdy pine wood, propelled by oars, which made them extremely maneuverable in the turbulent Korean coastal waters. If you need a picture in your head, it was like if a Viking longship spent a lot of time in the gym. But most importantly, the Panok Son carried 20 to 50 cannons. This made a Korean battleship more than equal to any Japanese vessel, if you have the guts to use it. But as we saw, most Korean admirals did not have the guts to use their fleets. Won Gyun, for instance, scuttled almost his entire fleet when he saw a bunch of fishing boats and panicked. After fleeing with the four ships he had left, the first thing Admiral Won Gyun did was send a fast message to his colleague Yi Sun-shin, asking for his help to stop the Japanese. And wouldn't you know it, Yi Sun-shin's hard work had paid off. When war came, he had a well-trained, disciplined squadron of heavy battleships, the only really effective military unit in Korea. Of almost, out of almost any other officer in the Korean military, 
Yi Sunshin alone was ready to kick some samurai butt. Now, Admiral Yi could have been like his fellow admirals, decided the battle was hopeless, scuttled his fleet, and run away. That seemed to be the trending thing. He could have been like Sin Ip, seeking reckless battle and getting wiped out. He could have ended up like Shang Paul, or so many other brave men, dying a glorious death defending a hopeless position. But none of that would have saved Korea. None of that would have fulfilled his duty to his country. Yi Sun-shin built up his strength, watched, and waited for the right moment. When he was finally ready, Admiral Yi made contact with his counterpart, the commander of the Chola Right Navy, Yi Yok-gi. They combined their forces and set out on June 13, 1592. They rendezvoused with what was left of Wan Giyun's fleet on June 15th, and the three admirals rode into the waters of Kyongsang province. This province was ground zero for the Japanese invasion, so it was crawling with samurai. But that was awesome. Ever since the main army had been landed, the Japanese fleet had been burning, pillaging, and raping their way through Korean seacoast towns. Refugees had come to Yi's headquarters with tales of what the Japanese were doing in Korea, and the robbers, as he called them, would have to pay for their crimes. Yi Sun-shin always called his enemies the Japanese robbers, which I think is kind of actually kind of cool. Because Yi Sun-shin was hunting samurai, and Kyongsang province was a target-rich environment. The Korean squadron found their prey on June 16th, off the island of Kojedo. One of their scout ships found 50 Japanese ships docked at the port of Okpo. The Japanese were on the shore looting and burning villages, as they did, totally ignorant that the Korean navy was out and about. But when Yi Sun-shin's ships burst from the smoke like an 80s rock band, the Japanese lost their minds. They ran around like shoppers on Black Friday before getting on their ships and trying to flee. The Korean Panoksons belched fire from dozens of cannons, sending iron shot crashing through the lighter Japanese ships. The Japanese sailors tried to respond with fire from their muskets and arrows from their bows, but now the tables had turned. On land, the Japanese musket outranged the Korean bow, but Yi Sun-shin's cannon outranged the Japanese musket. He kept his distance from the Japanese ships as his squadron rained hell on the trapped Japanese robbers. A young Korean woman had been taken as a sex slave by the Japanese, and she was on board one of their ships when Yi's fleet attacked. Here's what she had to say. Cannonballs and long arrows poured down like hail on the Japanese vessels from our ships. Those who were struck by the missiles fell dead, bathed in blood, while others rolled on the deck with wild shrieks or jumped into the water to climb up to the hills. At that time, I remained motionless with fear in the bottom of the boat for long hours, so I did not know what was happening in the outside world. I mean, yeah, that must have been pretty terrifying, but I can't imagine she was too upset to see her captors and abusers be blown up by the Korean Navy. The Japanese sailors panicked, jumped off the ships, and swam to shore, those that weren't torn to bits by Korean cannon and arrows. On their way out, Yi's squadron turned four more Japanese ships and their crews into fish food. Scratch, 26 Japanese ships. But Yi wasn't done. They were done hunting samurai when he said they were done. The next day, Yi blasted his way through another Japanese squadron at Jokjenpo, sinking 11 out of 13 ships. And then, 
Yi pulled his fleet back to base to rest and refit. This was one of his greatest qualities. Yi Sunshin knew that he had Korea's only effective fighting force at this point. He knew when to hold them and when to fold them. He had destroyed 37 Japanese ships, killed hundreds, maybe thousands of the robbers, for the loss of only a single man wounded. Yi Sunshin's absolute mollywhopping of the Japanese at Okpo was Korea's first victory of the Imjin War, and it had been accomplished with maximum damage and minimal effort. Now, even as Yi Sunshin was blowing Japanese ships into matchsticks at Okpo and Jokjenpo, Kanishi Yukinaga and his first division were marching into Seoul, so the Samurai Blitzkrieg and Yi Sunshin's naval battles are happening simultaneously. So Hideyoshi sitting in Nagoya Castle getting news. He's getting news, hey, my troops have captured Seoul. Hey, some random Korean admiral just blew up a bunch of my ships. He and his generals were confused and worried by the news. The Korean Navy was supposed to be destroyed. What was going on down there? You see, Yi Sun-shin's fleet threw a wrench into the entire Japanese plan. Remember, Hideyoshi's invasion plan had two arms the land advance up the Korean peninsula, and the sea advance up the Korean coast. As the Samurai Blitzkrieg rolled north, they would need supplies and reinforcements to be delivered by sea. If the Korean Navy stood in the way and stopped the Japanese advance by sea, the whole invasion could be choked off like a blocked artery. As June turned into July, Hideyoshi's invasion force began to fight its way west from Kyongsang province, into Chola province. This was the southwest Korean province that provided Admiral Yi with his troops and supplies. This was his base. So if Yi lost this province, he might lose his base and have to fall back. So Yi Sun-shin decided to launch another attack to halt the Japanese advance. Plus, the Koreans that his fleet had rescued on his first campaign told him horrible stories of rape, slavery, and murder, and he burned with vengeance. Luckily, Yi Sun-shin had a surprise in mind for the Japanese robbers. On July 8, 1592, Yi Sun-shin's ships approached the narrow harbor of Sacheon. The Japanese had garrisoned Sacheon Castle and were using its captured artillery to protect their anchored fleet. It was a situation kind of like what the American ships faced at Tripoli during the Barbary Wars. If Yi's ships came in too close, he risked the fire of the enemy's guns and the danger of his ships running aground. His prey, the Japanese vessels, what he was trying to destroy, were safe and sound inside the harbor. But what if they weren't in the harbor? When Admiral Yi's ships came within sight, he ordered them to turn around and row away as fast as possible. And the ruse worked. The Japanese thought the Koreans were trying to escape, so they chased Yi and his battleships out onto the open sea. The Koreans lured the Japanese out of their hidey hole. Yi's ships turned around, prepared for battle, and now Yi Sun-shin revealed the secret weapon that has always been associated with his name, the Turtle Ship. The Gyeobokseon, or Turtle Ship, had been designed way back in the 1300s, but Yi Sun-shin, remember Yi Sun-shin who knew nothing about naval warfare a year ago, had found the old idea in the archives, modified it, and built a prototype. He had tested this prototype a few months before the Imjin War began. The turtle ship was a modified Panoxon with a protective shell covering its upper deck, iron spikes on top, and 11 cannon poking out each side. 
Some sources state, although there's a lot of debate on this subject, that the ship was also covered with iron plates, which, if this was true, would make it the world's first ironclad. Tell the Monitor and the Merrimack that this is their great-granddaddy. Here is how Yi Sun Shin himself described the turtle ship. Previously, foreseeing the Japanese invasion, I had a turtle ship specially built with a dragon's head from whose mouth we could fire our cannons, and with iron spikes on its back to pierce the enemy's feet when they tried to board. Because it is in the shape of a turtle, our men can look out from inside, but the enemy cannot look in from outside. It moves so swiftly that it can plunge into the midst of even many hundreds of enemy vessels in any weather to attack them with cannonballs and fire throwers. Hear that? Fire throwers. There's literally flamethrowers on this thing. The turtle ship's speed and maneuverability, its diverse weaponry, and its nearly impenetrable armor made it one of the most effective warships in afloat in the 16th century. Korean sailors also like to put incendiaries or smoke bombs into the dragon's head of the turtle ship to give the impression like the dragon was breathing fire. So Yi Sun Shin unleashed this armored, dragon-headed, smoking, shooting, nightmare homicide boat onto the Japanese sailors at Sachon. And they reacted the same way anyone would. Absolute terror. The Panoxons fired from a distance as the turtle ship crashed into the enemy, smoke belching from its dragon's head, guns blazing and flames shooting out of the vessel. Fire arrows set Japanese ships ablaze, cannons shattered masts and sent pieces of men and boat flying, and the turtle ship weaved its smoky, fiery trail through the enemy vessels. At the very height of the battle, one Japanese musketeer almost managed to kill Yi Sun Shin. The bullet struck him in the left shoulder, but it was only a flesh wound and Yi stayed in command. Every Japanese ship that left the harbor of Sachon disappeared beneath the waves off the rocky Korean shoals. After the victory at Sachon, Yi Sun Shin and his fleet, turtle ship in hand, went on a rampage. Two days later, the Korean Navy said, what's up, to a Japanese squadron in the harbor of Tang Po. The turtle ship led the way, placing itself right alongside the flagship and blasting away like the ship had insulted its mother. One of Hideyoshi's naval commanders, Kurushima Michiyuki, was shot by an arrow, fell from his pavilion, and lost his head to a Korean marine. Scratched 26 more ships and one samurai warlord. Three days later, Yi Sun Shin said what up again at the port of Tanghangpo. Yi Sun Shin's war diary had this to say. Then our ships suddenly enveloped the enemy craft from the four directions, attacking them from both flanks at full speed. The turtle ship with the flying squadron chief on board rammed the enemy's pavilion vessel once again, while wrecking it with cannon fire, and our other ships hit its brocade curtains and sails with fire arrows. Furious flames burst out and the enemy commander fell dead from an arrow hit. Scratch 22 more ships and another samurai warlord. In a week, Yi Sun Shin and his Korean navy had trashed 61 Japanese ships without losing a single one. Samurai hunting was his business, and business was booming. But now, Yi Sun Shin had the full attention of Toyotomi Hideyoshi and the Japanese high command. 
In his two great campaigns, Yi Sunshin had sunk almost a hundred Japanese ships, a seventh of Hideyoshi's fleet, for a cost of zero. This was attrition on the wrong side of the balance sheet. Now by this point in the campaign, the Japanese fleet was supposed to be delivering supplies and reinforcements to Kanishi Yukonaga's spearhead, so the samurai blitzkrieg could continue. But now, no Japanese ship dared venture past the island of Kojedo, because that was where Japanese went to die. For every success the Samurai Blitzkrieg had achieved on land, Yi Sun-shin's samurai hunting navy had cancelled it out on the water. It didn't matter if the Japanese conquered every city in Korea, if they couldn't receive reinforcements or supplies. Hideyoshi was seeing his dream of conquest slip through his fingers, thanks to this one stubborn middle-aged Korean officer. Enough was enough. This had to stop. Hideyoshi ordered his three most experienced seafaring daimyo to assemble a massive fleet, sweep the Korean navy from the seas, and bring him Yi Sun-shin's head. These three guys were Wakizaka Yasuharu, Japan's most experienced admiral, Kato Yoshiaki, one of Hideyoshi's elite warriors, and Kuki Yoshitaka, a former Wako pirate. The best admirals leading the best ships with the best crews, the Japanese warlord was pulling out all the stops to crush the impudent Korean admiral, all that stood between him and the conquest of China. But once again, samurai ambition and competitiveness reared its ugly head. Wakazaka Yasuharu wanted to gain the glory of defeating Yi Sun-shin all on his own, so he didn't wait for his colleagues. He set out alone to confront the Korean navy with 82 warships. This was fine and dandy. Yi Sun-shin had been hunting samurai, but it was so much easier when they came to him. The two fleets would meet in battle off the island of Hansan-do, or Hansan Island. The arena of the Imjin War's first decisive battle was an open bay framed by the rocky islands of the Korean coast. Admiral Yi didn't want to fight too close to the rocks. They would reduce his ship's maneuverability, and they would also give the shipwrecked Japanese an opportunity to escape. So Yi Sun-shin pulled out Old Reliable. His fleet faked a retreat to the southwest, out into the open sea where the Japanese could be surrounded and destroyed. And on August 15th, 1592, Wakizaki Yasuharu took the bait. The Japanese navy came rowing out into the open bay near Hansan-do, just as planned. When the Japanese were far enough from the rocks, Yi ordered his ships to spread out into a semi-circular formation that he and his captains had been rehearsing for days, a naval equivalent of the crane-wing formation that Kanishi Yukinaga had used on land. I do have to note, commanders rehearsing battle tactics in this time period is almost unheard of, so it's just another indicator of Yi Sun-shin's military ability. They had a battle plan, they were rehearsing it and preparing it before the battle actually began. Spearheaded by three turtle ships, the Koreans enveloped the Japanese on three sides. The Japanese were ready for a fight. They had warships, experienced troops, the best admiral in Hideyoshi's force. But that wouldn't save them. On land, the Koreans had run, their leaders had failed them, they had been humiliated. But here, in the waters of the Korean coast, they were aggressive, confident, and led by a man they admired and trusted. Here, off the coast of Hansan Island, the Samurai Blitzkrieg met its match. 
The Korean battleships blasted away at the Japanese in a swirling free-for-all, a ship-on-ship duel that tested every sailor to his limit. And at the end of the battle, the Japanese fleet was in ruins. Wakazaki fled, leaving behind the remnants of a navy. The Battle of Hansan-do destroyed the best and most dangerous vessels in the Japanese armada. Hardly a single Japanese ship escaped the onslaught. 68 of them had gone to the bottom, bringing down thousands of dead with them. But Yi Sun-shin was not done. When the other two admirals heard the news of what had happened at Hansan Island, they hid their fleets in the Bay of Angolpo. Yi Sun-shin said, what up? He tried to pull off his tried-and-true tactic of a fake retreat, but the Japanese admirals refused to take the bait. They said, no, we saw what happened to the last guy. We're not doing that. So instead, Yi Sun-shin just rolled his fleet up to the outside of the harbor and blasted away for hours, a rolling barrage that eventually forced the Japanese to abandon their vessels and swim for the shore. Scratch another 42 warships, including the giant Nihon Maru, Hideyoshi's flagship, intended to carry the great warlord on his victory cruise to Beijing. Hideyoshi's flagship didn't sink, but it was crippled, along with his dreams of an Asian empire. Here is how Yi Sun-shen described the aftermath of his attack on Angolpo. We looked over the battleground of the day before and found that the escaped Japanese had cremated their dead in twelve heaps. There were charred bones and severed hands and legs scattered on the ground, and blood was spattered everywhere, turning the land and sea red. The only stain on the victory at Angolpo was yet another display of cowardice on the part of Wang Guyun. The admiral who had sunk most of his fleet was assigned to capture a group of stranded Japanese sailors. Yi Sun-shin was like, hey, you can take this small job, I'm sure you won't mess it up. But Wang Guyun messed it up. He heard false reports of an approaching Japanese fleet. He immediately chickened out and ran off, allowing the Japanese to escape. Yi Sun-shin was furious about this failure and rightly accused Wang Yun of being both A, a coward, and B, drunk. Soon the two Korean admirals, Yi Sun-shin and Wang Yun, had become bitter enemies. Though Yi Sun-shin had the advantage of being A, actually good at his job, and B, pretty much right about Wang Yun being a dangerous, incompetent alcoholic. But the division between these two men, the brilliant, dedicated admiral, and his incompetent, jealous colleague, would have dire consequences for Korea later in the war. Still, though, the battles of Hansan-do and Angol-po together are one of history's great decisive naval battles, standing alongside Salamis, Trafalgar, and Midway. Yi Sun-sen, Yi Ok-gi, and even Wang Giyun had combined to kneecap the entire Japanese invasion plan, but the brainchild, the genius, the driving force behind the Korean naval victories was this admiral that no one had ever heard of until just a few months ago, Yi Sun-shin. Yi's sponsor and childhood friend, Yu Song-neong, had this to say about the Battle of Hansan Island. Japan's original strategy was to combine her ground and naval forces and advance into the western provinces. However, one of her arms was cut off by this single operation. Although Kanishi Yukanaga has occupied Pyongyang, he can hardly dare to advance because he is isolated. The Japanese had captured the major cities, run the king out of his palace, shattered the Korean army, and committed horrible atrocities. 
but they didn't control the sea. Yi Sun-shin and the Korean Navy did. And by crippling the Japanese Navy and blocking its advance, they had cut the legs out from under the Samurai Blitzkrieg. See, for all their success from May to August 1592, the Japanese ground forces hadn't conquered Korea. Not really. They had conquered a road. They held a thin strip of territory, trailing the path of the Samurai Blitzkrieg, up from Busan to Seoul to Pyongyang, and not much else. No reinforcements were coming. No supplies were coming. The Samurai Blitzkrieg had run out of gas. And it was about to get worse. Because Yi Sun-shin and the Korean Navy were only one part of the three-part combo that would defeat the Samurai Blitzkrieg. The second part was already emerging all over Korea. Isolated soldiers, citizen volunteers, and even Buddhist monks were pouring out in droves to liberate their homeland from the invader. Korea was not as conquered as the Japanese thought, and soon they were pinned down all over the country, fighting a bitter and courageous guerrilla war. But the third part of the combo arrived on the morning of August 23rd, 1592, a week after Yi Sun-shin's victory at Hansan-do. As Kanishi Yukinaga's army slept inside the walls of Pyongyang, a cavalry brigade approached from the north, eager to defeat the invaders. But they were not Korean. They were Chinese. Little brother was in trouble and big brother was coming. The Japanese invasion had awakened the dragon. Between Yi Sun-shin's navy, the Korean guerrillas, and the Chinese superpower, the world's greatest army would meet its match. The samurai blitzkrieg was over. The Imjin War had only begun. Next week, we will continue the story of the Imjin War. We will see Korea begin to fight back as its guerrilla armies do battle with the samurai. We will see Ming China show the Japanese what it feels like to be on the receiving end of a gunpowder blitzkrieg. And we will see Yi Sun-shin continue to send Japanese ships through the woodchipper. Will the Japanese admit defeat? Or will Toyotomi Hideyoshi continue to believe, in spite of all evidence, that he is destined to conquer the world? And if you want to know more about the whirlwind of steel and gunpowder that was Hideyoshi's samurai army, you are in luck. It's a series. I have bonus short rounds all over the place for you guys. This Friday, I will talk all about Japanese samurai warfare as it was practiced in the 1590s. The soldiers, their weapons, their armor, how they fought. Hear all about Hideyoshi's samurai army this Friday. And the story will continue with part two on Monday. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it, especially if they're your tributary. If you don't, tell your enemies, but maybe make sure you're up to date on the latest weapon designs first. If you want to find all my sources and information, including specially hand-drawn maps of the Imjin War done by yours truly, it's all on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or just drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. Your messages, your commentary, your listens keep me writing and keep me talking. 
Thanks so much for listening again. See you same place, same time Friday for Hideyoshi's Samurai Army, and then next week to continue the story of the Imjin War, only here on Unknown Soldiers.